Okay, I'll open us in prayer. Thanks for your patience while we, while we work through that. Thank you, Lincoln. Father, thank you for this time this morning. I pray as we continue discussing debt, and in particular uh, mortgages, which are probably in the discussion of debt, is the uh, biggest question or the topic that uh, can be most puzzling because it seems so difficult to purchase a home with cash. And so I just want to bring the same request that I've had each other week, Lord, that your people wouldn't necessarily hear from me this morning, but that your word would be rightly divided and then hear from you. Um, we know mortgages uh, specifically aren't mentioned in your word, but there are principles that can inform this uh, decision in our lives. And so I pray you'd equip your people. It is a major decision. Um, a mortgage is, that if, if people get one, it's, it can be, you know, upwards or even more than 30 years that's, uh, of their lives that's affected by that decision. And so what, something of that magnitude, Lord, we would want to make that decision in a manner that pleases you. And so uh, or we would know that we would want to know that we shouldn't make that decision and instead should save up or do something else. And so I just pray for you to direct your people through this time, Lord, to thank you for this opportunity to hopefully speak into their lives and equip them for this decision that uh, most of them or all of us face because we need a place to live. And so help us to uh, operate according to your word and not what the world tells us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, before we jump into mortgages, I do want to make one point, something that's been on my mind just a little bit. I understand talking about finances or, or debt might not seem like the most spiritual thing. I think there can kind of be this tendency to believe that, hey, if, we're, if there's a, a teaching at church or a sermon, you know, it's got to be on prayer or forgiveness or something that seems really spiritual to us. But I want to ask this, what determines whether something is spiritual or not? What determines whether something is spiritual or unspiritual? Dan? If it's of God or not, does someone else say something? Uh, that's a good, well, um, that's a good point, because there's a saying that if you want to know where people are at spiritually, what are the two things you're told to look at? Checkbook and calendar, because it tells you what people do with, with their time and their money. Um, what I was going to say, maybe that was too vague of a question, was I would say God's Word determines what's spiritual. And what I mean by that is if it's a topic in God's Word, then it's spiritual. If it comes, the more frequently it comes up in God's Word, the more, the more um, spiritual it is. And so kind of that idea, the main things or the plain things, the things that come up frequently are those things that are of greatest concern to us. And money is a frequent topic in scripture, which means it is spiritual. We aren't, we're not having an unspiritual conversation these last few Sundays. Nobody should walk away feeling like, well, this is, this is, uh, seems like something that should occur outside of, outside of church because this, is, this isn't something, you know, related to our relationships with the Lord. I think that's absolutely untrue. When John Madela wanted to lead some, I can't remember if it was the Crown Financial class or Dave Ramsey. I think it was Crown Financial. Oh, it was Dave Ramsey. Okay. I was thrilled because that class allows people to handle their finances well, which uh, indirectly affects the way people can, can serve the Lord. And so when something is that evident or that frequent in God's word, then it's something we, we must give attention to. And finances is, is, is there. And then a subtopic of finances is debt. And there are many people whose lives are greatly affected by the debt that they have. And so I do, I do think this is a very spiritual topic. Now, one of the things that we've uh, it's kind of been in our minds in this discussion of debt is mortgages, because if there's one type of debt that seems the most legitimate or difficult to avoid, might be the better word, it would be mortgages. 
So for simplicity's sake, let's just divide our expenses into two categories. There's our non-essential expenses. That would be like eating out, that'd be vacations, that'd be entertainment. And then we would have our essentials, which would be food, clothing, and housing. And I think we're all in agreement. And even the people, like let's say with Harvest House or Michael Ferris, who disagreed with my view of debt, maybe just slightly, or maybe a lot, I'm not sure exactly how much they disagreed, but I know there was some disagreement. We're, we are all at least in agreement that you don't go into debt for non-essentials, and you don't even go into debt for most essentials. What would be some essentials that you shouldn't go into debt for? Food and? There's kind of three, huh? Food and clothing. I, I would say there's really no reason for anyone to go into debt regarding food and clothing. Um, you can get uh, incredible amounts of clothes, high-quality clothes at Goodwill. It's just kind of an issue of time because it's not as easy as walking. We, we've done most of our shopping at Goodwill, and people are happy to get rid of lots of quality clothes. And so you can uh, you know, get plenty, plenty of clothes there at a very uh, cheap price. So there's really no reason to go into... There's definitely no reason to go into debt for non-essentials. And for most essentials, there's no reason to go into debt. So should be avoided or, you know, um, vacations, flat screen televisions, electronics, things like that. The one exception would be housing, because uh, most people don't have the money to buy a home with cash. So if you're wondering how much to spend on housing, then the general rule, whether for rent or for um, a mortgage, is 30%. That's what I found. There's a little fluctuation, but if you're ever wondering how much to spend on housing, gen- which seems to be why most places, if you're going to be approved to rent, expect to see that you have three times whatever the rent is. So even in the secular world, that's kind of recognized as, as a, a good standard to live by. So, so whether you decide to get a mortgage or not, you should try to avoid spending more than 30% of your income on it. Some people consider themselves to be debt-free. I've heard this when the only debt they have is a mortgage. I really disagree with that. If someone comes and tells me, hey, we're debt-free because the only debt we have is a mortgage, I disagree with that because that mortgage could be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if you owe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, I don't see how you can be debt-free, considered debt-free. I'm not condemning people to have a mortgage, and I'm not saying that they're in sin, but I'm just saying we shouldn't say we're debt-free is if we owe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, if they're, and if they're not close to paying it off, then they're not even really close. If they have 10 or 20 more years to pay on their mortgage, or that's how long it'll take them to pay it off, then they can't even really say that they're very close to being um, debt-free. So any thoughts or questions before we continue? Audrey? I would not think so. Go ahead, ask that question. That's a good question. I don't think that's on. (laughs) Okay. Does the 30% include other things that go for a house like home insurance? and? No, I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. All right. Um, So just briefly, our situation, when, when Katie and I got married because I want to share how I feel like God sort of changed at least Katie's thinking about debt or mortgages, and I hope that maybe what she learned might be a benefit to you too. So Katie and I got married. We owed $160,000 on mortgage on my house in California. 
Um, Katie had about $6,000 in school loans, and we owned two vehicles that were paid off at that time. And we didn't owe any credit cards, and we still seem to be having trouble getting a credit card because, as I shared last week, we haven't, I haven't had uh, you know, credit a, a score for a long time. Now, we were, when we got married, kind of one thing to understand is Katie, her, her father, Rick, who many of you know is a farmer, and he has tens of thousands of dollars coming in and out regularly. And so whenever you're dealing with larger sums of money, smaller sums seem small to you. And you, it, I could be wrong, maybe not everyone's like this, but it just seemed to, to Rick that you know, sending or spending or giving hundreds or thousands of dollars at a time here or there wasn't significant to him. And I mentioned that because that was kind of how Katie, Katie was raised. She was brought up without seeing money the same, same uh, way that I did. And so it wasn't as big a deal for her to spend what I thought was a lot, of, a lot of money at times. And so when I mentioned wanting to pay off our mortgage or be debt-free, she was opposed to that. Now, the one moment, literally moment, that basically changed this for us, which is I told you all that just to be able to tell you this, was one of our wedding gifts was the Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey. And there were three reasons that we were deterred. Um, well, one of, one of the reasons people say they want to keep a mortgage is for, for tax deductions. And, and, but one of the three reasons that we were deterred, one of the main reasons, was the Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey was given to us as a wedding gift. And Katie and I were driving to our honeymoon, uh, and she started reading this. And it was like, I guess everything that Katie didn't believe from me, she believed from Dave Ramsey. <laughs> That's the way that I said it. So I, I was like, kind of like she'd read these parts of the book to me, and I'd be like, man, that sounds kind of like what I said. I don't know why it wasn't. <laughs> I guess, you know, he's got more credibility than me, which is, which is fine. At least I'd rather my wife be convinced if I can't do it than someone else, you know, can convince her. I'm just glad she's convinced. And so regarding tax deductions for a mortgage, this is what Dave Ramsey wrote. He said, if you have a home with a payment of around $900 and the interest portion is $830 per month, you have paid around $10,000 in interest that year, which creates a tax deduction. If instead you have a debt-free home, you would in fact lose the tax deduction. So the myth says to keep your home mortgaged because of tax advantages. If you do not have a $10,000 tax deduction and you are in a 30% bracket, you will have to pay $3,000 in taxes on that $10,000. According to the myth, we should send $10,000 in interest to the bank so that we don't have to send $3,000 in taxes to the IRS. Personally, I think I will live debt-free and not make a $10,000 trade for $3,000. So just one part of uh, what I thought was a pretty good book, at least the portions that Katie read to me, and it really convinced her to try to, that we should you know, pay off our mortgage get out of debt as soon as possible, which we, and we're still of that persuasion. So the second reason that we were deterred was it really kind of sickened us. If you ever look at how much you pay back, if you have, uh, let's say, a loan of, or a mortgage of $200,000, you're going to end up paying back closer to four hundred dollars or $500,000, depending on the interest rate. And so if that doesn't make you sick, then, well, it should make you sick. Okay, I don't know what to say other than if you if if somehow in your mind you justify having two hundred thousand dollars to pay back over four hundred thousand dollars, there's really something wrong with that. So I, that should bother all of us. Um, over the thirty years of the loan, we were going to pay back three hundred seventy-two thousand dollars, which was more than twice the amount of the loan itself, which was one hundred sixty thousand dollars at that time. And then third, and then most importantly, 
which I think Jake was the one who pointed this out last week, which I appreciated, was we thought God's word discouraged debt. And so for those, those are kind of three reasons. Dave Ramsey's book was very convincing. Um, the amount of money we'd end up paying back. And then third, we thought God's word had a, presented, a, and I still am convinced of this, negative view of debt. So we thought it was something that we should, we should not have in our lives. Okay, any questions or thoughts before I continue? Audrey? Lincoln, you might just want to hang around there, (laughs) sit in that chair there. I find it very interesting that um, of those three things that uh, helped convince her that um, God's word was not enough. Um, And I think that um, tells loudly of how we are given to want to believe other things like the myth of spending more in um, on interest rate on interest for the mortgage instead of paying less to the government because we'll have seven thousand dollars more in your example Mm -hmm. and um, how it's interesting how much we need to be convinced of something when it's already in god's word to Mm -hmm. tell us to do what we're supposed to do yeah i think that's what jacobson in in katie's defense i don't think she had a real familiarity with what god's word said about debt and i think maybe meant okay okay yeah well, that was kind of one of the things, I guess, that Harvest House seemed to want to, to convince me of, that they thought debt was, was in God's word, but God's word did not oppose debt as strongly as I made it sound. So that was kind of, Harvest House basically said debt was more of a wisdom issue than a sin issue. And some of those things that I shared about lending and borrowing allowed me to see that perspective, which is why I generally view it as a wisdom issue now versus a sin issue. But, I, but even in saying it's a wisdom issue, I still think it's unwise. <laughs> so that not, not something that I, I feel uh, good or positive about or would encourage people to have. So thank you, Audrey. Jameson? Um, just wanted to, to add a thought that helped me kind of better understand the math. Because um, you hear that where it's like, okay, a $200,000 mortgage, 30 years in, you would have spent 450000 I think what was helpful for me not to argue against the point because I think the point still stands, but but the math is a little different when you think about inflation. Inflation. Inflation, I think, is averaged three percent, three to five percent, year over year in the U.S. for the last like fifty years. Till this last year, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, average. The average uh-huh. has been similar. That you you end up losing very close to that value on that money anyway. So if you just had it sitting, if you and didn't do something there, with it, that, that two hundred thousand would have cost you about 150000 of its value over that 30 years, regardless of the interest. So that at least helped me temper, because that sounds ridiculous. Wait, I'm going to double spend for the house? But it kind of does the same when, when not in contrast to actively investing, if, if that money was just sitting there. Yes. So it was just helpful, because that does sound like a ridiculous thing that anyone would do mm-hmm. until you go, well, that's kind of what your money's doing anyway. If it just sat in If a, it's just sitting. Yes, yeah. well said. Anyways, that was it. Yeah, so I tell my kids, if money just sits in a savings account, you're losing money. Yep. Anyone else before we continue? Um, I was just going to add to what Jameson was saying. I think the uh, tax write-off for the interest is not 100% of the reason that people are anti-paying off the house. Especially if your interest rate is around 3 to 4%, instead of dumping extra money, like double payments or whatever to pay off the house early, taking that extra money, actively investing it somewhere where you're making the 12 or 15 again on a good year, 
uh, that's how they justify keeping keeping the, the mortgage. Not okay. that that's how I view it, but I've had people tell me that it's the way to do it. So, You've had people tell you what? I've had people tell me that I shouldn't be in a hurry to pay off my mortgage. I should be taking that extra money that I'm using to pay it off quicker than my full loan term and invest it somewhere where I could be making 10, 12, whatever that, whatever that might be. All right. Thank you, Lane. Yeah, and then one of the things I said is Sunday at evening service last night was I appreciate all the discussion and contributions, different perspectives on, on something that's, that is more of a wisdom issue than being totally black and white. So I appreciate other people sharing, even if it seems like they're you know, disagreeing, but I just want to say if you disagree, then you should be comfortable with other people disagreeing or even me disagreeing with you. That's what anyone that wants to teach, you got to be comfortable with people disagreeing with you. And that also means if you want to contribute something, you should be comfortable with people disagreeing. But I do appreciate the contributions and hope that they continue throughout this, this and, and the fall, any other Sundays we talk about this. Okay, um, one of the other things which some, nobody said, but I thought someone might, uh, deals with appreciation. And one reason that mortgages will be viewed uh, acceptably is it's an investment in an appreci appreciable, appreciable, what's the word there, appreciable? So something that appreciates, an investment that appreciates versus one that depreciates. So we kind of talked about vehicles, uh, the immediate depreciation as soon as you drive off the lot of about 15% makes it a horrible investment. Even if some people last week kind of disagreed and said it's not as bad of an investment, just because it's not as bad as it used to be doesn't mean it's any a good investment, a new vehicle. I'm still pretty convinced it's a bad investment. But anyway, that's the idea is that mortgage is the opposite of that. You're buying something that's going to appreciate over time. So which contrasts with um, vehicles, boats, uh, electronics that depreciate. Now the problem is that many people have found themselves upside down in their mortgages. So they've been told that this is an investment that's going to appreciate, and then they found the opposite to be the case. That was the, that was the situation for me. I, you know, in 2005, I guess, or four, that's when I bought my house in California, and I didn't, I was like, well, I don't want to throw away all this money in rent, so I'll buy this house. And then 2007, you guys know what happened with the housing market. So my house went from what it was like 205,000 and just tanked with all the other houses in the, in the country. And so I was upside down, but fortunately I didn't end up being in a financial situation that required selling it or anything. But many people have found themselves upside down in their mortgages, which is just where the value of the home is less than the, the loan amount. During the subcrime mortgage crisis from 2007 to 2010, or we call, commonly call it the Great Recession, 11 million Americans, or 23%, so almost one out of four homeowners, were upside down. When the crisis was over, what's interesting is the crisis was said to be over, but the percentage increased to 31% in the third quarter of 2012. So even when the crisis was over, almost one out of three people were still upside down in their homes. The situation improved, but the New York Times reported in 2015 that still about 17%, so almost one out of five, maybe about one out of six, homeowners were still upside down in their mortgages. A 2003 article in NPR was titled, You Be the Judge, Is the Housing Market Really Improving? Reads, the number of underwater homeowners may be down, but it's still extremely high, with an estimated one in five owing more than the home is worth. A 2016 article titled, A Decade Out, A Decade Out from the Mortgage Crisis, Former Homeowners Still Grasped for Stability, it read, Homeowners across the U.S. confronted the reality that their houses were worth a fraction of what they paid for them, 
Now, a decade later, even though the recession is over, more than 6 million homeowners are still upside down in their mortgages. So we live in a fallen world and we're, you know, we're either in a trial or we're heading into a trial, right? You know, one, one trial. Oh, do you have some? Wait, Lincoln, bring that to your dad, please. This has been one of the common complaints, understandably, people can't hear, so I appreciate it. So just a quick question. Those reports, do they take into account like home equity loans that people have taken beyond the original value of the house, or is it just I don't know. Say that again. I didn't the, say the question again clearly. Those numbers that you're talking about, the 17% or the 15%, mm-hmm. do those take into account home equity lines of credit that people okay. have taken out in addition to the original or just the Against original? their home? Yeah. A line of credit? I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, that would obviously, you know, then your, balloon, your, your debt, your mortgage balloons because of the amount of credit you've taken out on it. Yep. I think um, there are a couple of thoughts that I've, I've heard over the last few years that have helped round out my perspective, I guess, or, or challenge my perspective on, on mortgages or on debt. And um, one that I think is particularly interesting and applicable, applicable here is that uh, in America, we have a lot of debt protections uh, and, and structures for debt that are different than existed when when you know Solomon writes that the borrower is slave to the lender, uh-huh. um, for example, that like in that time you you were physically slave to like you, it was a debt. Against you didn't get your to file body. bankruptcy. It, yeah, it was a debt against your body and against your life, and so you were physically, literally, slave to. The or lender. they take your kids, or you're either paying them or they yeah. own you and your your possessions. And so, mortgages are particularly interesting because it's a debt against an asset that. The worst case scenario is they reclaim the asset. It's not a debt against you as a person that carries. The, actually, okay. the only thing that does are student loans that that do feel the most similar to a biblical time debt because student loans carry past bankruptcy. They, they, they go with your body until you die, um, which scares me. <laughs> That's particularly terrifying. But that does feel the most applicable, whereas mortgages are against an asset. So the bank says that asset is worth 300000 I'll give you 250000 for that, giving you 50000 in equity. But the bank is choosing what that asset's worth, and the bank is choosing I will insure that asset, essentially, with this debt. And worst case scenario, you stop paying, I take that asset back, and then we're good. The bank owns the asset, it's out of my hands, I'm off. So I thought that was just an interesting okay. perspective to think about. Um, Mortgages as a different form of debt mm-hmm. than like credit cards and, and other things. I'm, I'm not. Just gonna, I might push one thing though. Yeah. I, you, you're kind of making it seem like if the bank takes that back, like it's not that big a deal. But it's kind of a big deal when the bank takes your house. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> but but I would say a similar deal to if I can't afford rent and I get kicked out. Yeah. Like, okay. The act of losing housing is traumatic and difficult and painful. Yeah. I don't know that. Okay, it's not the same as being a slave or being a slave. Okay, I get what you're saying. The impact is the same. You've lost your home, whether you were renting and got kicked out or or lost your home, but it's not like they come after your livelihood. They go, I'm putting you in prison because you can't pay on this debt. So in contrast to that, it's still bad, but in contrast to that, it's not as bad as it was written in biblical times or the Old Testament. Different, whether as bad or not. It was just a different thing than ever existed before. All right. Any other thoughts? Good, thank you, Jameson.
I just kind of want to push back. No, maybe not necessarily push back, but the idea of, I, I think we see a lot of people, especially in the United States, because of the protections that we have, making really, really bad debt choices, especially when it comes to the homes. And so I've known people that are in their home owing a large amount on it, uh, partly due because of those home equity lines of credit. You know, they, they take out more than what they have in it because we gained equity. Um, and even though that, yes, if the bank does take the house back and they're just in the position where they have to go and find a rental or have to find and move back in with mom and dad, there is a, um, I think going back to the idea, is it a spiritual thing? I think that it is a spiritual thing because there's such a burden on that person that we can't liken it to slavery, but there is a sense of bondage. And I think that that does bring the person down and it does um, put them in a position where they're not as free as what they could be because of the decisions that they made with that loan. Yeah. Again, not that all mortgages are bad, but it can very easily become a situation where I would liken it to that bondage or yep. that, um, that bur just that sense of burden that they're not able to make the choices. So if I understand, whereas Jameson was uh, contrasting times today with when that was written, and there are considerable differences, you're pointing out that there still is an amount of bondage as Solomon wrote, yeah, if think, he wrote Proverbs 22.7. Yeah, I think... Uh, uh, or Paul when he wrote Romans 13. An emotional and a spiritual bondage yeah. because of the debt you've taken on. Yeah, it does affect our lives for sure. Yeah, can't be as generous or... It, it, it was pushback. <laughs> I'm pushing. <laughs> I thought, it, I thought it, you guys complimented each other. You guys just want to stand and hand it back yeah, and forth. Yeah. Well, I'll just go sit with Robert. Just go sit next to him. And I'll sit with Robert. I feel like that's the, that's the appropriate balance. Right? Yeah, Where you guys both like, said things that are true that complement yeah, each other. That, that mortgages, there, there may be a reality that, that there are appropriate mortgages. I'm not saying. I think that's, if anything, it's a conscience decision. Um, but also, there are absolutely times that... The, the emotional and spiritual weight of a mortgage is sinful. Of any debt, of any financial decision is sinful. Significant, yeah. Yeah, you guys did well. I don't think that was a test of fellowship. I hope you guys can walk out and still... No, it's over? Oh, okay. It's... Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so, 2020 dealing with COVID, CBS News reported this. 6.7 million house, well, I guess my point is this, let me, because they, they started talking and it might have interrupted the flow, but my point was this, basically. We had, we had a, uh, before they started arguing, so, just joking. So, my point is simply, being in a fallen world, we kind of go from one trial to the next. And so, there was a, you know, great recession, but then we have COVID, and then there's financial, there, and when COVID's over, there'll be another trial, and this is what life is. And so, because of that, we can't always be guaranteed kind of, um, you know, smooth sailing financially speaking or in any, in any respect. And so there was a, the financial impacts of COVID. Um, CBS News reported 6.7 million households could be evicted in the coming months, and that amounts to 19 million people potentially losing their homes, rivaling the dislocation that foreclosures caused after the subprime housing bust back in 2007. And so 
the statistics reveal there's just no guarantee that a house is going to appreciate. And so plenty of people can attest to the financial problems they experienced when there was unforeseen circumstances, whether it was a recession or COVID that caused the value of their house to plummet or, or hindered their ability to make their, to make their um, payments, mortgage payments. James 4, 14 and 15, it says, you don't know what will happen tomorrow for what is your life. It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So we don't know how the economy is going to fare. We don't know what trials we're going to face or emergencies um, you know, are going to occur, or what expenses we're going to have to pay for, or even what our job or income will look like. So there have been plenty of people who thought that they would make you know, um, the same amount of money or more money the following year and then ended up with um, yeah, less money and, or a job loss. And so there's just no guarantee that what we're dealing with today, and that's my point with mentioning James 4, is I think it discourages us from being certain of what tomorrow will bring, because really only God knows that. And so, so why am I mentioning this? Well, I'm mentioning this because it should cause us to pause regarding a decision that could affect the next 30 plus years of our lives. If we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, I think we really need to be cautious this is just looking at it from a different perspective. So one perspective is God says this about debt. Well, I'm, another perspective regarding mortgages is you're signing up for something that can affect the next 30 years when you don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring. And so that's why I think there should be, anytime you're signing up for something that deals with your future, the, gr- the more of your future that it deals with, the more concern or prayer need, needs to be put into that decision. Does that make sense? And so that's why I'm not sure that, that signing up for something for 30 years when you don't even know what tomorrow or next week has in store is going to be a particularly wise um, decision all the time. So any thoughts? Yes, Patty, one second. Thank you, Lincoln. I think I know the answer, but uh, now that there is the potential for 10-year or 15-year and not always 30-year mortgages... I still think you're going to say no, but at the same time, if you find yourself in that position, signing up for one or because your your payments are quite a bit higher than the thirty more thirty year mortgage, and usually the interest rate is the same or lower. So, does that make a difference? So you said you think you know the answer. So what do you think is the answer? No. Yes. I get to ask the question sometimes. <laughs> okay, uh, I was going to talk about that, but this isn't a bad time to mention that. I would highly encourage if you're going to take a mortgage to pursue a 10 or 15 year. Yeah, I think that's, and I don't, the one, one I agree with most of what I said, the one thing I disagree with, which I'll show numerically, is the, the payments for a 15 year are actually not probably as much higher as people might expect versus 30 year. I think in people's minds, like, oh, if I go from 30 year, if my 30 year payment is, you know, 1500, then go to a 15 year, it's going to double that. It's not. So most people, um, if they would be surprised by how much less actually a 15-year versus 30-year monthly payment is. But I'll give you some numbers for that a little later. So I'm just saying when the future is unknown, we should exercise extreme caution and prayer before locking ourselves into decades of of payments um, that are dependent on our financial situations remaining the same. People become indebted to the loan company for up to 30 years or more. Someone mentioned refinancing, taking out debt. I think Robert did, or a second mortgage. So just really think, pray, um, be careful about embracing something you might not pay off for the rest of your life. And even if you do pay off, even though 
Jameson mentioned inflation, which I do think makes this look not as bad, consider the amount you will end up paying back over those 30 years and how much more than twice the loan itself. So, okay. Any thoughts before we continue? Uh, Dorothy? Go ahead, Lincoln. You got to run. You got to pick it up a little bit, buddy. There you go. I've seen you run around. I've seen you run around the church, Lincoln. You can run. In, you can run now. <laughs> when we're dealing with big decisions like this, we really need to go into those decisions perfectly, like you said. But before there is anything on the on the table, um, with anything, because sometimes our emotions, I, even if Scripture is very clear about some things, if we haven't been looking into God's word and we haven't been praying about it, we haven't been determined on what God's view is on this. We can go into a situation and our emotions are driving us and we can make some very poor choices and we've seen it within our family and other things and it's, it's just heartbreaking because scripture is very clear on some things. And I'm not saying the debt, you, it's a wisdom issue, I, I agree with that. Okay. But um, it is something that we do need to have that foundation laid in our, on our perception before what's in front of us is shining because we... Our hearts get deceived so easily. Um, I know Andrew's, in, in, in our lives, when we were first married, any purchase over $100, he really wanted us to sleep on it <laughs> before we purchased. Now, uh-huh. we go to the grocery store. We can't get out of there. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we, <laughs> there are some things that, you know, that have changed <laughs> over the years. But, um, but just to know where to not let the emotions drive the foundational force because our feelings are so deceptive okay thank you Dorothy. so do you guys make like 40 trips to the grocery store to keep it under a hundred dollars to fill <laughs> okay uh, all right so um i would say this i'm not quite concluding on this but i would add don't delay getting out of debt commit yourself to making changes that'll put you on, on the road to uh, being free from that bondage and I'll talk about some ways that we can, given time and, and I believe wisdom and sacrifice, be, be debt-free. Um, now, one of the ways that we can try to um, avoid a mortgage, well, actually, there's a few, a few ways I think we can try to avoid a mortgage, and I wanted to, I wanted to talk about uh, that. But I had asked Robert and Katie if I could talk about them, or at least I'd ask them if I could talk about them in my book. And you said I could. Did you know that? It was a couple years ago. Can I still talk about you guys a little bit? <laughs> if I could put it in a book, I mean, people here could read it when it comes out. So. You didn't name us in the book. I did, though. You gave me, I did mention your names, yeah. I read the book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned your first, last name, your address, and phone number <laughs> for people to call you if they wanted financial counsel. Okay, so, so I just shared this story in my book that when people have a baby... I frequently try to, or we sign up to bring them a meal, and I try to read people when I, there's some people like my wife, after she has a baby, she doesn't want to see anyone. She doesn't even want to see our kids. She wants to be locked away in our house, in the deepest, darkest corner, away from everyone. So if you ever brought us a meal, don't be offended that Katie, don't think Katie just doesn't want to see you. She doesn't want to see anyone. A lot of times she doesn't even want to see me. So I go to people's houses, understanding other women can be like uh, my wife when I bring a meal, and I understand they're I would personally prefer to have the opportunity to come in and see your baby and pray for you and your, your baby and your baby's salvation with you. And so some people allow that. If they don't, it's, it's a no big deal. I try to read people, see if they want me to come in or not. And if they don't even open the door and just yell through the door to set the meal outside, then I know they don't want to see me, which is fine. But anyway, so 
brought this meal to Robert and Katie this, this, uh, after their fifth son, I believe, and they were still living in their, um, in the, is a motorhome, is that what you call it? A motorless motorhome. Oh, they were living in a motorless motorhome up while Robert was building their house, and so this is seven people, uh, Robert, Katie, and then five energetic boys, although Lincoln hasn't looked particularly energetic bringing the mic around. I want <laughs> to pick it up a little bit here, Lincoln. So they're living in this motorhome that's on the property while Robert's building their house. And so I came home and I told Katie two things. I said, first, um, that I was really proud of you guys. I was incredibly proud of you and Katie for um, the sacrifices you got. I don't know if I ever told you that, but I told Katie that. And I'm, I do feel privileged to tell you before our, before our church family that I was incredibly proud of the sacrifice that you guys made to do that. And then second, I told Katie that we're very fortunate <laughs> when I kind of thought about um, what you guys were going through, that we don't, we don't have a lot to complain about. So then you finished the construction, you moved, into your, you moved out of your motorless motorhome into your, into your motorless house, and then and were debt-free. And so I just wanted to put that in the book, because so many people say you can't, you can't have a house, you know, have your first house debt-free, and uh, you guys show that that's not true, and there are other people that, that show that argument is false as well. Um, so I've seen some other young people that uh, we've known either outside the church who've been able to have their first home uh, debt-free, and I want to give you three approaches to trying to, to do that. So three pieces of advice. First, you can consider a rental. I know it's kind of frowned on because it's almost like people say you're throwing money away, but um, if you're, the idea is the money would be better put off you know, or put toward the cost of your house, and it appears to be true until you consider how much of that mortgage payment goes toward interest. So here's what I mean. Someone says, well, if you're renting, you're just throwing this money away. But if you get a mortgage, so the idea is get a, get a mortgage because then all this money is going toward the purchase of your house. But if you have a mortgage, all that money is not going toward the purchase of your house. In fact, if you ever look at the breakdown on, this, on the um, schedule, the, the first few payments, over 90% of it, is going toward interest. So even when you do get a mortgage, you're not putting the money toward the house. You're putting the money, if the money toward the house would be the money toward the principal, a lot of the money isn't going to the principal. It's not till the very end because the bank wants to make sure that if you back out of this, that they're at least going to get all their money from the interest up front. So that's not really a good argument that having a mortgage at least makes sure the money goes toward the, toward the house because it really doesn't. Uh, if you want, the only way to really make sure that the money goes toward your house would be to buy the house with cash. That is the only way. Any, any other approach prevents that from being the case. So consider a rental, try to save up the money in the meantime. Um, Second, we had some friends who lived in a basement until they could buy their first home with cash. We had other friends that lived in a two-bedroom rental with uh, seven children. That was uh, the Zumsteins, Dave and Leah. I don't know if they wanted to share anything about that, but I didn't mention your names, Dave, because I didn't, I I mean, I mentioned them now on here, but I didn't mention it in my my book or anything. (laughs) But uh, they lived while Dave was building their house. Can you share this, or do you you mind if I share it? I probably should ask you that ahead of time. (laughs) Sorry, Dave. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so... I want to get, the, get it correct. Was it a two-bedroom place with seven kids? Okay, while well, you built the house in the evenings after work? For over 10 years. No? More or less than that? Three years? Okay. You're not... Okay. Okay, okay. All right, so seven kids, two-bedroom rental while Dave was building it in the evenings. Um, so 
I do think it can be done, at least if you have those. That was kind of Michael Ferris's argument, which I related to. He thought he didn't have the skills to be able to build his own house like that, like Dave, Dave and Robert have done. But there are other people who didn't have the skills, but they just they lived in you know, a basement, and they did nothing. They spent nothing. They saved everything. They went nowhere, you know, or they walked, and they bought nothing new and saved every single cent until they had a few hundred thousand dollars to buy their first house. So even if you don't have the skills to build and I kind of put myself in that category with Michael Ferris, then you can still make other sacrifices. The third thing I'd recommend, and I just don't see people do this as often as I think they should, is to, is to you don't have to move into the, your, um, the house of your dreams. You can purchase a starter home. You can save up money for a smaller place that you buy with cash. That house appreciates as you save more money. Hopefully the house appreciates. And, then you, and if, even if the house doesn't appreciate then the, the nice thing about um, selling and buying at the same time is if the market has tanked or g- gone up, then either way, the house you're living in is following that trend. And so if you purchase a starter home versus the house of your dreams, then with, with cash, then if, if the housing market goes up, then the, house, the price of your starter house has went up as well. So that when you sell that and then combine, hopefully, with the money that you've saved up, then you can move into that, that house that is, you know, uh, bigger, better, better accommodates your family, however you want to want to look at it. So when I talk about buying a home with cash, I guess it might be more accurate to say buying homes with cash. Um, you know, you don't have to live in the dream house in your 20, 20s or 30s. Any thoughts or anything? Kind of Wait, where's Lincoln? Oh, he's still not running yet. Okay. <laughs> I'm just joking. Lincoln, you're doing a good job. He'll never do this for me again. <laughs> purpose to be debt-free. had been way more out of our we would have been more bondage trying to rent we wouldn't be able to eat than we would with a house payment so for us we chose to get the house payment because not to get bondage but because we needed a place for our family to live and because for us it was far more financially sound to put the money into a house than to put ourselves into bondage for a rent that we could not afford there would have been no way so and it's worked out for us because of the way the economy went. Our house is worth far more than what we paid for it. It's um, again a wisdom issue. We prayed. We sought counsel. It was really hard for us to make that decision because we were not wanting to put ourselves in that position. But if our house, if we defaulted on the loan at this point, it would not be. Um, you're not upside we down. We owed anybody anything, yeah. and we, and nobody sold the house from under us. So that, um, you know, you have 30 days to find a place is really scary when you're trying to have a lot of kids. So when you were saying that about a house that you might not have, and yet that's an emotional thing, it's just as emotional if you're renting. It doesn't belong to you. So somebody can do the same thing to you even if you're renting. Any other thoughts? 
Audrey? Yeah, so our experience also was uh, similar to uh, Katie and Robert's. And um, yep. one of the things that we um, felt uh, early on in our marriage is like no debt, but then we thought that it would be a wise investment to get into a house, which was back in 2000. And then uh, we sold that one during the, and it was a starter home. It was on a busy street, had a small kitchen, but it was cute in lots of ways. But, you know, those two factors was going to make it hard to get a lot of money from it. And so when it was uh, booming, we're all like, okay, well, this is the time to sell um, because we'll have more people wanting to purchase something mm -hmm. to buy. And so then we bought our place in Woodland. And then when, it, when I kept asking Carl, hey, you know how you wanted to build a house and and stuff and you've been so drawing you've been drawing plans for him for a long time now you can yes. build one. <laughs> yes and so um i'm like well this is our way to then get into something smaller get out of debt completely with um you know no no mortgage and uh, but we were we did have to actually have a mortgage on the land because we didn't have oh. enough um, oh, wow. purchasing uh, cash to buy that as well as have enough to buy the house but at least it was only for five years uh, build the house sorry and but at least it was only for five years and it was still we made sure that it was doable for us and that it wasn't a lot of uh, it'll come back on it'll come back on if you're not okay, okay. thanks Audrey All right. anyone else Okay, all right, so if you decide, if, uh, you know, the path of faith and wisdom for you, uh, mortgage is wise, you believe. So you're still going to go forward with the mortgage. I want to offer two pieces of advice. First, understand uh, qualifying. Basically, the, uh, the subprime mortgage crisis, I believe, occurred because people were being given mortgages that they really had no business receiving. So there were, there, uh, you know, the, the economy sold these toxic assets, and, uh, and I think at the foundation were people being given mortgages that they couldn't afford, that I think people probably sitting on the other side of the desk in you know, the bank knew these people could not afford it, but want to uh, make as much money as possible and are, and are given, given the mortgages to people that have no business having them. And so I guess my point is it's important to understand what qualifying means. Just because a bank tells you you're qualified doesn't really mean you're qualified. Uh, just because a bank tells you that you can afford something they're trying to sell something. A mortgage is something that they are selling. They want to make money. And so they can, they can tell you that you can afford something when you might not um, really be able to, or you're going to be locked into high payments that can paralyze you for decades, where you feel like you have you know, no breathing room whatsoever. You're unable to save or be generous or prepare for emergencies. And so a much wiser approach would be a smaller mortgage that you could pay off faster and easier. And then what Patty had said earlier, which I agree with, is choose a 15-year versus a 30-year mortgage. Many benefits to a 15-year versus 30-year. You're going to have lower interest rates, uh, which means you're going to have less interest that you end up paying over the course of the loan. You're going to have quicker equity built into the property, and you're going to decrease the likelihood that you end up being upside down if the housing market crashes. Now, the only downside to a 15-year mortgage, which is what typically discourages people, is the higher monthly payments, although I don't think that people should be as discouraged because I'll, I'll share some of the numbers, and hopefully you'll see that it's not that much higher. So if you have um, a 30-year, $300,000 mortgage with a 4% APR, the, the payment is $1,432. 
the total repayment is going to be $515,000, so $215,000 in interest. But if you do the same mortgage for, with the same APR, but a 15-year, then it's going to be $2,200 for a, $2, per month for a total repayment of only $399. So the interest is more than less than half. That's kind of an odd way to say it, isn't it? Basically, you have $99,000 in interest versus $215,000 in interest. Um, so the difference is only, is only is less than $800 per month, but the interest is more than cut in half. And so you're saving $116,000 or $117,000 from doing that if you can pinch the extra you know, $700-$800 um, per month for that payment. So any thoughts or anything before we continue? Uh, Go ahead, Robert. One thought that I keep kind of, there it is, everybody's kind of in different circumstances and different opinions, and I think it goes really in line with the idea of a mortgage being, or debt being a wisdom issue, is I keep going back to 1 Corinthians 10.31, where it talks about whether we're going to eat the food that was sacrificed or offered to idols, or whether we're not going to eat that food. I'm not comparing mortgages to, you know, food that was intended for idols, but it talks, it kind of ends it just with, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And for me, that kind of draws me to ask, okay, if I take out a mortgage and I put myself into a position, because I, I work with for a, a lot of people that have a, it's very natural for them to go out and get million and million and a half dollar mortgages after they start their first practice. And mm. if you look at their, their debt ratio that they have their practice, which is well over you know two million dollars of debt and then you look at their mortgage on their house which is another million to million and a half it's just it's absolutely ridiculous based on the salary that they're bringing in mm. and it's a very unwise choice and a lot of these people do claim to be christians and if it all came crashing down on them it wouldn't glorify god that they took on so much debt, so much debt from the perspective of was your god able to provide for you and so for me looking at the debt that i bring on is would I be able to glorify God or would God be glorified in the end result? And so with that concept of that idea of wisdom coming into the equation, I think is really important. Okay. Thank you, Robert. Anyone else? <laughs> Just stand up near each other to make speed this up, kind of, as you go back and forth. Uh, sorry, I care about this topic. This is a good, this is a good topic. Um, Maybe just adding to what to Robert said, because I think he touched on it with the verse he shared. Um, I, I do think, and this is from personal experience, that it, that it's super important to not just view debt as a wisdom issue, um, but also as a conscience issue. That that it's not it's not all numbers on spreadsheets. It's not all if something is deemed to be wise, everyone can do it, or everyone should do it this way, or I have someone in my life who did it this way over here, and so. Because it was wise for them, I can just do it as well. Um, and I think, you know, we, we kind of had to struggle with that, or, or maybe I kind of had to struggle with that in the sale of our home last year um, because we had built up a, a good chunk pretty recently of, of medical debt. Oh, okay. And so our home um, never felt like a conscience problem, and we did have a mortgage, and... and by God's grace, it, it had appreciated significantly, so it was worth much more than we had paid for it. We felt very blessed in having that as an asset, but we had this medical debt, and I felt like I couldn't breathe, that it was like, 
I don't know how to get out from under this. And it wasn't the mortgage that was making me feel that way. It was this other stuff. And, and then there was this, this light bulb that went on of, sorry, I'm not crying. I, I have a frog in my throat. <laughs> it's really emotional thinking yeah, about it's this. Really yeah, really emotional. <laughs> this light bulb that went on of God has given us this asset that's, that's worth well more than this debt. And if we just sold this, we could not only be out of debt but have a, a massive emergency fund and and feel blessed and, and like we have some some freedom cushion okay and so for us like like I went through this process of justifying for myself why the medical debt wasn't our fault it wasn't like credit nope, card right. debt it wasn't irresponsible yep. debt yeah and so I, I went I was justifying and justifying saying this is fine like many people are here it wasn't our fault yep and so. I can live at peace under this, but I wasn't at peace and wasn't at peace and wasn't at peace and had to come to a, I, I think my conscience is telling me we need to sell our home and, and we need to, to pay off this debt. And the relief that that was, um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever had something like it. The, the feeling of like, here's a $15,000 payment for this debt and here's, and just boom, gone and, and truly completely debt free. And so, yeah, all, all I just add is that for anybody in here trying to make decisions, it is absolutely a conscience decision as well. And so being in prayer about it, and if it doesn't feel right, if you think you might feel guilty in doing that, don't do it. Or do do it, you know, wh whichever direction you're trying to decide. Um, because I think we have the Holy Spirit in us, and... My conscience is different than Lane's conscience. is different than Robert's conscience and what the Lord has for us. And so as we apply wisdom, we also have to think about how it applies to me uniquely. Okay, so, hold the mic for a second. So yeah. do you see wisdom issues and conscience issues identically? I don't. Okay, what do you see as the difference between them? Uh, good Because good I don't either. I don't either. Yeah. I, I think, um, and, and I may be hard-pressed to find a good example off the top of my head, but I think th there are wisdom situations that apply holistically, that, that would apply to, to all of us, things to do and not do um, uh, that, that are general rules that we can all live by and be blessed if we do or, or blessed if we don't do by following those, those wisdom rules. I think the application of those wisdom rules is where our conscience comes in. So for example, um, for you, you may be in sin if you get a mortgage, right? Because that's where your it conscience, my conscience. That's where yeah. your conscience is. And so if you weren't mindful of that and you look around and you say, well, I see godly people that have mortgages. I guess I can get a mortgage too because they're godly and I don't think they're in sin. So I'm just going to do it and then violate your conscience by not being careful to understand that difference. So that, that's all that, that, I, that I feel like we wrestled with and I personally had to wrestle with was the justifying because I see wise people doing things that I'm wanting to do, which was keep the home and, and work down the medical debt, but come to a realization of that's not where my conscience is. My conscience is sell the home, pay the debt, and, and rent, which is, what we're, which is what we're doing. So um, does that distinction make sense? I think so, yeah. That's how you apply the wisdom is a conscience decision. Okay. All right. Yeah, we got a pretty pretty okay rental. You guys situation. knew you had a rental. Yeah, a good rental yeah. situation. That, that's worked out pretty well. It's been okay. It's been fine. All right. Anyone else? 
Okay, well, I've got 10.30, so uh, I'll go ahead and pr- close this in prayer here. Did you have something, Adam, or are you just stretching? Okay. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Uh, I continue to uh, bring before you people's consciences and that you would direct us as we wrestle with this, help us to apply wisdom to each of our situations and uh, apply your word and that we would seek above any counsel we'd receive secularly or uh, from financial advisors to consider what your word says about our our decisions or whatever decision we're facing and so as each person wrestles through this especially younger people who are generally the ones in the uh, um, facing the potential of a mortgage direct them lord and, and help them to make the right decision I do pray that we would be guided by you. I thank you that your Holy Spirit convicts us. I think of Romans 2 and how our conscience um, approves or disproves our decision. But as believers, we have the Holy Spirit to uh, convict us or approve of our decisions for us, Lord. And so I thank you for that. I pray you bless the fellowship time now that follows and then go with us into the worship service. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed.